morning again to all of you, and it's welcome here this morning. Good time, blessed time last night at the Park Park wedding and celebrating with them and worshiping Christ together with them. And I think, uh, seeking myself, finally getting situated, my body's back, adjusted to the, to the time and the schedule, and this sermon will show if my mind's back or not, my mind's functioning normally, but had a blessed time, and it's, it's indeed good to be back. I don't know if you heard about uh, one of our, our, our story of our flight over there. James and I are flying, flight of Russia, and tell this story in the third person. Flying on a 747, Jumbo 747, flying over, and about a, you know, a couple hours over, over the ocean, look down, see the ocean, and we hear this strange noise. It's this clunking sound, and all of a sudden there's kind of goes away, and pilot gets on the intercom and says, we just lost power to our number one engine. 747s have four four engines. Number one engine just lost power. Everyone's like, oh, that's not good. We're flying. He goes, you know, we'll slow down a little bit and be delayed about an hour. And so James is like, oh, barely going to make our connecting flight. So we're flying some more, and <clears throat> we hear that strange, strange noise again. And... That silence. Pilot comes on. Folks, sorry to tell you, we lost uh, power to our second engine. All right, it's okay, two engines left. And James is like, man, we missed our connecting flight. It's over. A couple hours later, you know, we're looking out the window. We see icebergs floating in the ocean, and, you know, people are kind of sweating a little bit. And we hear that strange sound again, right? And everyone's gulping and Pilot gets on the plane. Folks, we just lost power to our third engine. And James is like, man, we've got to spend the night in St. Petersburg now. Flying a little longer, and this time we look down, and there's no, there's no uh, floating iceberg anymore. The ocean's just a solid sheet of ice. And that, hear that, that eerie, scary noise again, followed by just dead silence. And I stand up and I go, man, we're going to be up here all day. Okay. All right. So, just trying to wake you guys up and wake me up too. All right. If you didn't get it, then you could talk to me afterwards, and I'll explain it to you. But bad joke. But uh, it just shows us again the importance of. Elementary principle, you need power. If you don't have power, you're not going anywhere. Our world is dependent upon power. Jet, jet airplanes are dependent upon power. Automobiles are dependent upon power. Upon the manifold intake, taking that mixture of, of uh, vaporized fuel and air and the pistons, crushing it and combusting it and making that spark and then the, then the combustion pushes the piston back up so the engine can move the crank so the engine can go. The body is the same way, right? You ingest food so that your body can uh, transform that into energy to use it so you can move, so that you can, your mind can function, so that your muscles can work. No fuel, no function. And so that's, that's the basic principle of our, of our world. The basic principle of how things function. Well, there is a similar analogy with the church. The church is not just uh, perpetual motion, right? but it runs on something. And I would say the basics of that, what it runs on, it's the Word of God. The Word of God is what fuels the church. You move away from that fuel, you move away from that source of energy, and the church has no power. The church has no capacity to function. The church has no capacity to minister according to what God and the ways in which God is calling the church to minister. That may sound somewhat negative, but our text this morning, Colossians 3.16, is far from being negative. It is a great encouragement to the church. It is a great blessing to the church. And ultimately, I would say just from this simple text this morning, we'll see it is the source of power. It is the fuel 
for the church. Let me read Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness and your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Lord, it is our endeavor this morning to be mindful of the great need of the Word of Christ. Lord, it is what we cling to. It is what empowers. It is what ignites the church. And so, Lord, in this very simple and yet very encouraging text, I pray you would remind us or teach us afresh, teach us new. And that, Lord, though this is the same sermon every time, Lord, I pray that, God, you would encourage us and that you would motivate us, O Lord, to live for your glory. Now we thank you again for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning we focus particularly on verse 16. The word of Christ richly dwell within you. And this verse is really a one-statement summary of how the church functions. The Word of Christ is central. The Word of Christ dwells within the church. And the result of that is what we'll look at later on. This sharpening, this wisdom in teaching and admonishing, this singing of praises and thanksgiving with each other before God. And so let me give you just a very simple outline. Three points. We'll go through this verse. We'll look at the fuel. Secondly, we'll look at the furnace. And thirdly, the fire. So first, the fuel. And by my intro, what I'm talking about here is just the source, the source of enablement. From our text, we see that the Word of Christ is the fuel. The Word of Christ is the fuel. But our task this morning, and with this particular phrase, is discover what is the Word of Christ, and what does the Word of Christ do? That phrase, Word of Christ, is a very unique phrase in the New Testament. In the Greek, it reads, Logos to Christu. It's the only time that that specific phrase appears in the New Testament. There's a similar phrase in uh, Romans 10:17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But the word there is not Logos, it's Rhema. I'm not going to make a big issue of that, but just to tell you that Colossians 3:16, that phrase is the only time this is in the New Testament. In a general sense, that phrase, word of Christ, might consider that as a synonym for, the, script, for uh, the Scripture, for the Word of God. Word of Christ, Word of God. Word of God is given many titles throughout the Scripture. And each title gives lucid insight and depiction of what the Word of God is and what the Word of God accomplishes, what the Word of God does. So let me uh, just shout out some of these synonyms, some of these descriptions of what the Bible is, just how vast the New Testament describes the Scriptures. Ephesians 6.17, Paul says, And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Titus 1.9, Holding fast the faithful Word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Romans 1.2 says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Right? So my Bible says, Holy Bible. Romans 1.2, that's where we get that. The Holy Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word. James 1, 
21 through 23, what does James say? He says, in humility, receive the word. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. Hebrews 4.12, we know well. For what? For the word of God is living and active. A new one for me was uh, Isaiah 34.16. It says, seek from the book of the Lord and read. Right? The book of the Lord. Colossians 3.16, the word of Christ. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And the last one I'll point out is 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately what? Accurately handling the word of truth. The word of truth. Now, let me move on and go a little further and even begin here with 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, Pastor James is leading us through this. We'll have much more time to come and he'll have much more time to explain. But if you read 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8, following, and you read from verse 8 all the way up to verse 15, and you understand what Timothy is Uh, What Paul is saying to Timothy when he is telling him, verse 13, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard, which are in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Verse verse 1 of chapter 2, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ And you keep reading and you get to verse 15. And when Paul is telling Timothy, be diligent to accurately handle the word of truth. He's not telling Timothy to be a good student of the Bible. He's not simply telling Timothy, you want to be a good preacher, you got to exegete, you got to work on your Hebrew, you got to work on your Greek. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, You have to understand the gospel. The word of truth. It is very specific. Paul says, Timothy, what the church needs is they need to understand the cross. They need to understand the contents. They need to understand the outworkings. They need to understand the the efficacy of the cross of Jesus Christ. You have to accurately handle the gospel. Because if you get the gospel wrong, you nullify the whole Old Testament. You get the gospel wrong, you're going to create not a New Testament church, but a New Testament sect. You're going to create a New Testament cult. And so you have to understand the gospel. I'll back up for a second. This text... This is the greatest command of Timothy. And its application is immediate for us this morning. And its greatest command is not all of you, but it's to the men that stand behind this pulpit. Because there are thousands of churches meeting at this very moment, teaching from the same Bible, reading the same Old Testament, even reading the same New Testament. But you know what they get? They get the gospel wrong. And because they get the gospel wrong, they get the whole church wrong. They get all of salvation wrong. And they get all these people serving wrong. This command for us is the greatest command to pastors. To diligently understand the gospel. Because many people study this Bible. The Jews read the same Old Testament as we read. And yet what did they fail? They failed to grasp the gospel. Jehovah's Witnesses... They read the same book as we read. They read the Old Testament and they believe the Old Testament. But they fail to grasp the gospel. Mormons, likewise, maybe they have secondary books. They read the same Bible as we do. But they fail to grasp the gospel. The Catholics, the Catholics, they preach about the church. They preach about Jesus. But then they fail to tell you 
that salvation is by grace through faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. And because they get justification wrong, they get all of salvation wrong. Because they fail to heed this very specific text to be diligent to understand the gospel. From beginning to end, God unfolds from Genesis to Revelation His glorious plan to magnify His name by saving saving rebels through what? Through the gospel. So Paul says, Timothy, never ever lose sight. Never, ever stop studying the gospel. And so from that, let me go back and read some of those verses that I read to you and argue that those verses do not merely speak and say, they're not just synonyms for the, for the Scriptures or for the Bible. Listen to James 1.18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Brought us forth. That's New Testament terminology for regeneration. That's John chapter 3. Unless a man's born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. God, He gives us new birth. He gives us new life through the cross, through the gospel of Jesus. Philippians 2.16, Paul says, holding fast, I want Philippians, you to be holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run or toil in vain. We hold fast to what? Not just the Bible, but the, but the cross. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word. Romans 10.17, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. All those are synonyms for the greatest, most profound pinnacle of the Bible, the Gospel. Which brings us back to Colossians 3.16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So my question I'll pose now is, what does the Word of Christ mean? Does it simply mean, let the Bible be the center of your church? Let the Scriptures be the sole foundation. Now, I'm not saying that that's not true. It is. But specifically, to grasp that, as we're zoomed in here on this verse, we've got to zoom out. right? We've got to zoom out, grasp again, big picture of Colossians. Chapter 1. Verses 15 through following. What does Paul do? We know it. Paul, he lays forth divinity. He lays forth the deity. He lays forth the omniscience, the omnipotence, the great glory and the great power of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 21 and 22, he tells them profundity of what this God-man has done. He's gone to the cross and he's excuse me, paid for our sin. And then in verse 23, Paul says, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Paul's greatest concern in this letter is that they would move away from the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. If they get away from the person of Jesus Christ and His power and His deity, then the cross becomes not the crucifixion of God, but the crucifixion of just another man. And becomes a man who cannot pay for our sins, but a man who has to pay for his own sins. So Paul first unfolds who this man that's dying on the cross is and shows us why he can utterly wipe away every blot and blemish in our own ungodly hearts. And having done that, he tells them, do not move away from this hope. He goes on in chapter 2, pleading with them, telling them his great labors are so that they would remain steadfast in holding on to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4, shows his false teachers are trying to lure them away from the gospel. So in verse 9, he reminds them again. Christ is God. Verse 10, Christ makes you whole. Verses 11 through 13, Christ removes your dead flesh and makes you alive. Verse 14, God forgave our sins. How? Through the cross. 
And that's the gospel. While you're there, uh, go to chapter 2, verse 14. Reading from verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That is the center of this book, the cross. The cross took away that certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was hostile, which was shouting out our infinite offenses before a holy God. All of us have heard of the book of life, right? We've all heard of Christians' names being written in the book of life. But here Paul tells us about a scroll of death. This book of death in which all of our sins and all of our offenses have been written down. And this horrid certificate laying bare all that we have done. Anybody seen that movie Amazing Grace? A movie about William Wilberforce. That man in the English Parliament who labored year after year, decade after decade. He labored to see slavery abolished in England. And this man would go before Parliament and he would argue and he would labor to convince people slavery was wrong and that it was unjust. And his antagonist, his opponent, would stand up on his turn to preach and speak and he would tell everyone, this man, is a, he's a crazy man. He's a madman. Nobody, nobody else in England wants to see slavery abolished. He's the only guy. And so there's this one scene in the movie where this antagonist, this opponent, he's telling that, he's, he's telling Parliament, nobody else wants to see slavery abolished. And at that moment, William Wilberforce, he steps into the front door of Parliament. And he pulls out this big scroll. And he unrolls it all the way down to the front of the magistrate. And everyone's standing up and they're looking at this scroll. It's like 20, 30 feet long. And written on that scroll are the names of hundreds of thousands of people that are opposed to slavery. That's a picture of the judgment seat where we stand before God on that final day. And God, He pulls out this massive scroll and He he unrolls it. And it rolls 20, 30, 40, 50 feet However, life, however long your life was. And it stops at your feet. And you take a look and you look at that scroll. And you see that written upon it is every single sin you ever committed in your life. Every heinous thought of rebellion. Every angry deed. Every lustful thought. Prideful work. Every single one is there, written by the hand of God in eternal, unerasable ink. And standing around you is the whole world. And they too are looking upon your scroll of sin. And you're undone before the holiness of God. You're petrified. Things that you have forgot about. Sins that you committed that you thought nobody else knew about. God has them perfectly inscribed in perfect detail. Everything you did, all of your scheming, all of your thought process, all of your attempts to cover up your sin. It's written there in lucidness and in clarity. And you reel back in horror at what this scroll says about you. And you realize that you're condemned and that your condemnation is just, and that you have no argument before the throne of God. And you cry out in agony, woe is me, I'm undone. But then in that moment, God, He pulls out this fountain pen. 
and it's filled with the red blood of Christ. And He writes across that long scroll with all of your sins, paid in full, the blood of Christ. That's what Paul is saying in this text. That scroll, that certificate of debt, of your eternal condemnation, was placed on Jesus Christ at the cross. And as he writes, paid in full on that paper, you remember, you remember that your hope was never that that scroll would be unfolded and that nothing would be there. Your hope wasn't that when that scroll was unfolded, it wouldn't be measuring your good with your bad. It's all bad. But you remember that your hope before the holiness of God was that Christ, He bore your sin in His body on the cross. And you look back to the cross and you see our pierced Savior. You see His hands and His feet pierced on the cross. And you notice that in His hand He's holding some scroll. And you walk closer and you look near and you realize that He's not actually holding onto the scroll, but it's pierced. It's tacked onto His hand and into His arms. In fact, you get more close and you look even more clearly and you realize it's not nails of iron that are holding Him on the cross. But it's your own sin. It's the spikes of your own indignation towards God. It's the nails of your own hostility that are piercing His own hands and piercing His feet. And you realize that Christ, as your sin holds Him there, He's paying for your wrath. He's paying for your sin. He's paying for your rebellion. And all of a sudden, your cry of woe before the throne of God turns into a cry, turns into tears of joy and thanksgiving. Because He has taken it out of the way. That certificate, that scroll of your debt was laid on Christ. That is why Paul tells the Colossians. Colossians, if you turn away from Christ, that scroll is yours. You pay for it. That scroll is not rolled up and thrown into the fire. You're rolled up and you're thrown into the fire. Because if you don't have Christ and you don't have the gospel, you have nothing. Why is this so important to grasp? Because Paul says in our text, Colossians 3.16, the word of Christ is not simply the scroll of Scripture. It's the scroll of the Gospel. The Word of Christ, the Logos to Christu, is all the fullness of the Gospel. And why this is so important is because Paul is telling us, not only is that the fuel, but what is the context? It's the furnace. Our second point is the furnace. What are we supposed to do with the Gospel? He says, let the Word of Christ, let the cross... Let the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your knowledge of this gospel richly dwell within you. Let it dwell in you. The word translated dwell comes from the Greek word which means to house, oikos. It means to, to dwell, to let it inhabit, let it be at home in, let it reside in, let it take up all residence in every room and every confine and every crevice of your house and of your mind. Or let this fuel be placed into the furnace. It's a present active imperative. It's a command to make your heart into a house for the word, for the gospel. In fact, this is that same connection. Flip to Ephesians 5.18 for a moment. I think we're familiar with this connection. Ephesians 5:18 and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your hearts to God 
That's a parallel. That's a New Testament parallel. Paul writes almost the same exact thing. And said, instead of saying the word of Christ, he says the Spirit. Now, how does this Holy Spirit come to dwell in us? What is the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit? It's the impartation of the gospel to believers. So I would say even more synonymous than just saying the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is what controls the believer. Paul is saying the Holy Spirit controls the believer through the gospel. The Holy Spirit resides in you as the Word of Christ, as the gospel resides in you. And you see that exact same parallel in Ephesians. The whole book of Ephesians really just unfolds. Ephesians 5, 8, uh, whole book of Galatians, I'm sorry, really just unfolds Ephesians 5, 18 and Colossians 3, 16. What is Paul defending in Galatians? The gospel. And then he says in chapter 3, you have begun, you who have begun by the Spirit, will you now be perfected by the flesh? By the works of the law? How did the Spirit come? How did the Spirit start working in you? How will the Spirit continue to work in you? What does Paul tell them to, to look to? The cross. So the whole point of, of Galatians is to show people that the, the gospel works and the Holy Spirit works with the gospel. No gospel, no Holy Spirit. No gospel, no empowerment. You cannot put your flesh to death except by the Spirit and you cannot be in the Spirit except by the gospel. Legalism does not work. So back to Colossians 3.16. Paul is telling us, yes, let the gospel dwell in you. Let it be the center of the church. Note the adverb. Let it richly dwell. I take that as a call to constantly be reminding ourselves of the gospel. The gospel is the morrow of the scriptures. Not to water down the gospel. The gospel is not a flash fire one Sunday. Right? The gospel is not the message that you just believe, you know, and then you, you're a believer, and then you move on to other doctrine. As we say it again, the gospel is not for unbelievers. The gospel is not for new believers. The gospel is for all believers. So Paul says, let this gospel richly dwell in you. Let it, with a long, slow burn, sit in the furnace of Cornerstone Bible Church. Let it remain and reside in you. Let me point out something else as well then. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now the you there in the Greek is not a singular you. It's a plural you. Or if you want to say it this way, it's a corporate you. So my point here is that Paul is telling us the gospel is not simply for individuals. The gospel is not simply for me. The gospel is not simply for you, but the gospel is for all of us residing in all our hearts, residing in the church. The gospel is what knits the church together. The gospel is what empowers the church to do ministry and serve. The gospel then, if you will, is a corporate gift. For far too long in America, you and I have been brought up with this mentality of personal Jesus. Brought up in this mentality of Jesus, he is your personal savior. He is your personal friend. He's your own personal Jesus. And I'm, I'm, I'm hounding on that because the result of that personal savior mentality often results not in a corporate gospel, but this individual gospel. It's me and Jesus, that's all I need. Me and Jesus, I don't need the church. Me and Jesus, I got my own ministry. And that's really the outworkings of this personal savior mentality. Once you've got a personal savior, then you've got a personal ministry. And we see that all over the place today. Everybody has their own personal ministry. When the Bible talks about personal ministry, 1 Corinthians 12-14, it says personal ministry for corporate ministry. 
But this mentality has been birthed through this personal Jesus idea that you've got a personal Savior and you've got a personal ministry. And now America is flooded with all these people who they're seeking their own personal ministry. They're seeking their own personal endeavor. And thus they got their own personal agenda in the church or outside of the church. Everyone's doing missions. Everyone wants to go overseas. Man, we're in Russia. We're at this, you know, booth getting souvenirs. And this guy just out of nowhere walks up to me and tells me he's from Australia. Right? This is negative. You know, I guess I should be negative, but it's negative, you know. And he just tells me he's here. And I'm like, oh, how would he do? And he's like, oh, I'm learning Russian so I can go back to Kazakhstan and I could do ministry to orphans and stuff. And I said, oh, you know, that's great. And you know, I asked a little bit and it was clear. He's on their own. He's on his own. He's a lone ranger. And I would say majority times not, we go overseas and we meet missionaries, or, you know, we meet short-term workers. They're all lone rangers. No one sent them there. No one, you know, equipped them. No one said, yeah, brother, you got this gift. They just go. Most of the time, they're like the guys you wouldn't want to send. But even if you are, you know, God, even if you do understand the gospel, this idea of this personal ministry, it's not a right understanding of the gospel. It's not a right understanding of the, it's not a right application of the gospel. Let me see that. And it's not a right application. Why? Because the contents, the, the context of gospel ministry is the church. And so Paul says, let the gospel dwell in you, the church, for the good of the church. This is not. I have a call to be a pastor, so I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to ordain myself. Or I'm going to start this new outreach. I'm going to start this new Bible study. Now, I'm preaching to the choir in many ways. Why? Because the gospel resides here. And leadership is strong here. And this church is strong. And so people aren't making all these endeavors to go out and you know, start all these new things. But maybe the danger of this own personal Jesus, our own personal Savior, where we think too much about ourselves, we think too much about our own salvation, think too much about our own ministry, we get self-focused. Paul reminds us that the gospel is the center of the church. And when we put our eyes on the gospel, we take our eyes off ourselves. We take our eyes off ourselves and we look at the gospel. In other words, we're, the gospel is the lens in which we see the church. The gospel, the cross, is a pair of glasses. And you place those on and you can see the church rightly. But if you don't place the gospel glasses on, you cannot see the church rightly. If you just have a personal Jesus mentality, then it's just going to result in a personal church. But if you put the gospel on and if we allow the gospel to be the center of our, corporate, of our corporate body, of our corporate fellowship, the gospel is what enables us to do ministry to each other. And that's why the third point is the fire. And I'll prove to you what I'm saying. The gospel is the fire that motivates the church to serve and to love. You guys know how fire works, right? I mean, no one really knows how it works, but how it kind of works. Right? You get a spark, and there's that flame. And then what feeds the fire? What does the fire run on? Oxygen. So you sit at that fire, and it's kind of dying down, and what do you do? You blow on it. You fan it. And why does that work? Because it's getting oxygen in there. It's pumping oxygen in. And as that more oxygen is there, it fans the fire up. We see this picture here. As the gospel richly dwells in the church, as the gospel is perpetually fanned, if you will, then it creates this great fire which burns in the bosom of the church. Look at the result. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the fire, the great ripping, roaring fire that is a result of the gospel.
We have a noisemaker. So, again, I always hesitate because it's a bad illustration. But we have a noisemaker in Lydia and Sophia's room. And this noise is a maker. And we put it in there and we, and we plug it in and it makes this white noise so that the girls will sleep. And, you know, like if we're banging around, it doesn't wake the girls up. <clears throat> well, it has a, has, a, um, like a, has a gauge on it, power gauge, a converter, I guess you would call it. So I go in one night and I push the noisemaker. And instead of a sweet, soothing stream that normally comes out, it sounds like a volcano, right? And it's like cutting out. It's making all these horrid noises. And I can't sleep to that. They can't sleep to that. There's really no purpose of turning on the noisemaker if it's not making the proper noise. So I push the button to come more, put it on and off. I'm flipping on all the knobs, and it's not working. I'm like, what's wrong with this thing, you know? And then I remember it's got a power gauge in the back. So I flip it around, and sure enough, somehow... Lydia or Sophia, you know, got their finger in there because it's pretty small. And they, they pushed that thing and they changed the voltage. And so they put that in there and it was sucking in like half the volt, half the wattage that it needed. So what I do, turn the, turn the button, push the button, and beautiful, calm, soothing stream. That's the gospel. When the gospel is not... <laughs> Yeah, you can laugh because it's a cheesy illustration, best I can do. Right? When the gospel is, when it's not being preached and it's not being expounded and it's not being unfolded, the church is not unified, the church is not ministering smoothly, the church is not growing in unity and growing in edification. It's got this static, it's got this broken up sound. So the voltage is important for the church. The wattage, the source, the fluidity of the gospel in the church is so important. And Paul says that when you've got that down, incredible things start happening. The men and women of your church, with all wisdom, will be teaching each other, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Friends, this is Biblical Counseling 101. What is this teaching? What is this admonishing? Or you could translate it encouraging. What is it? It's a church that knows how to apply the gospel. That's all it is. Biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is simply what a pastor is doing is he has discernment. He knows how in this situation and in this circumstance to help these people apply the gospel to their marriage. Apply the gospel to their to their habitual sin. That's the gospel. That's why when you go to counseling, and you go to like, quote unquote, biblical counseling or whatever it is, and they just tell you all these imperatives, do this, stop doing this. You go to that for like four months and you leave and you're exasperated. Why? Because they're just telling you what to do and you're telling them, I can't do it. And they're telling you, do it. And they're saying, I can't do it. And week after week, they're saying, do it. You're saying, I can't do it. And there's a complete wrong understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't just tell you, first tell you to do it. It tells you why you can do it. It tells you what's enabled you to do it. And so you go to churches where Sunday after Sunday, it's, it's moralism and it's these imperatives and it's these commands. And slowly people start getting tired. And they want something else besides the Bible. They want something else besides the scriptures. And you know what? You know why? They, they don't really want something else besides the Scriptures. It's just that this, the way the New Testament is being taught, it's like the Old Testament. The New Testament is being taught like it's a bunch of laws and a bunch of regulations. And so people get tired of the New Testament because they don't understand the law of liberty. They don't understand that the cross is freedom. And they don't have men, and men unfolding the glories of Calvary. And so finally people are so tired of all these imperatives. They say, let's have something else. Let's have more 747 jokes. Let's have more stories. But when the gospel starts being preached and it starts being expounded, it starts being unfolded, people say, I want the gospel. And then when people are equipped with the gospel, then they start having wisdom and insight into their own life and then also into the lives of others. Wisdom. My favorite definition of wisdom, it's an unusual skill or ability. 
It's an unusual skill or ability. That means it's not normative. It's not normal for us. The gospel gives us the skill or the ability to discern our lives and to discern the lives of others. So that's what sharpening is. When we're confronting each other, when we're ministering to each other, we're helping each other with the gospel. When we see brothers who are you know, caught up and who are depressed, struggling with their sin, gospel wisdom says, brother, you're taking too, much, too many looks at your sin, not on the cross. And so we help them. When we see people who are struggling with you know, being libertines and just going out there, we're reminded, brother, the cross freed you from sin. It freed you to live in the power of the gospel. So gospel wisdom, it allows you to minister to others. By the way, I could tell you, speak for myself, that one of the greatest privileges of being a pastor is that you get to learn about the dirt in everyone's lives. You get to learn about all the stories, all the problems. But that's not the joy. The joy is that you get to hear how the gospel's changing them. You get to hear how the cross is sanctifying men and women who are messed up. And it's the same for me. Maybe one of the uh, lack of, what's the opposite of that? One of the lack of benefits of me personally being at Cornerstone is that I came here, you know, at 28 years of age. And you didn't know me before I was a believer. You didn't know my whole life. But I think that my life, and if I knew you more too, our lives would be more powerful. If we had a fuller picture of what our lives were like, and even what our lives really are like. Because it's when we really know who we were. And it's when we really start unfolding like in flock and in small groups. This is who I really am. That's what makes the gospel great. That's what makes the gospel sweet. Is when we start really saying, look, I know you think I'm this way. But this is how I really am. And then we can say, great. Let me help you with the gospel. And then you can say, help me. You help me with the gospel. And then what does Paul say? What is the result of this gospel? It's the corporate praise. It's the corporate worship. It's the corporate exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of the cross. We minister to each other and we worship with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What fuels us our worships, not the Ten Commandments, but it's the six miracles on the cross. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God in our lives, enabling us to live these lives in praise and worship to God. So let me give you, to end here, just a few applications. The applications are numerous, but I'll just give you four. So the first way that I see this working is if you're going to let the cross, let the gospel dwell in you, that means you have to talk about the gospel. That means you have to share. What are you learning about the gospel? So the, the task is not just repeating, you know, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose again. I believe in him. I'm saved. But the task is letting the cross do its work in you. So what are you learning about the cross? What are you learning about your own sinfulness in light of the gospel? How are you learning to apply the gospel to your own life? That is letting the gospel, that is letting the cross richly dwell within you. That is what fuels us when I hear about the cross working in your life. That's what gives me joy. That's what gives James joy. That's what gives Bob joy. It's hearing about the gospel working in you. Secondly, very practically, Always read the Bible with an eye to the gospel. Always read the Bible with an eye to the gospel. Because every book either leads to the gospel or it expounds the gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What is the crux of those gospels? 
What if you just read the Sermon on the Mount and close the book of Matthew? What if that's all you studied the rest of your life was Matthew 5 through 7 and, and Matthew 10 and the woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and then you close the Bible? You would have nothing. Because the whole purpose of all those messages, Christ is leading us up to Matthew 27 to the cross. So we always read the Gospels with an eye to the cross. How about Acts? The whole book is about the cross being preached and the cross unleashing its power and creating the church. How about Romans? We do this every week. I tell you this all the time. We hear this all the time from the pulpit. Romans 1 through 11, it's all salvation, but more specifically, it's the gospel. The crux of Romans, Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, for in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously, He passed over all the Old Testament saints' sins. He passed over all the disciples' sins. Why? How could he do that? Because he looked forward to what the cross was going to accomplish. And now we look back to the cross. So the cross is the very center of Romans, the heart of Romans. First Corinthians chapter 1 begins with the power of the cross. The second to last chapter, verse 15, ends with the resurrection of Christ off the cross. Galatians, the whole book is the gospel. Ephesians verse 1 through 13, this, that very one sentence in the Greek it just un, unfolds the whole gamut from the beginning of election to the end of glorification, sealing in the spirit of the gospel. So your task is finish it. Go through the rest of the books. Every morning when you sit down to read your Bible, you ask, where is the cross in this? If it's not implicit, how does it lead or how does it point you back to the cross, back to the gospel. Always read your Bibles with an eye to the gospel. Thirdly, remember the distinction between service and ministry. I think that the sweetest application here is the ministry that results with the gospel, and that is personal ministry to one another. The gospel makes you want to serve. It makes you want to love. Now, I don't want to relegate service. It's not. It is, in a sense, the platform upon which ministry is built. Infrastructure, I, I mean, hopefully i, I got to share how much this, you know my understanding of this has changed. I came in, there's a low view of administration. I'm leaving, if I ever do leave, with a high view of administration. Right, you know, you go to Russia. I told this, when, you know, to James when we got to Russia. I was like, man, you know what? The big problem in Russia is no infrastructure. Their whole government is collapsing. The whole country is just collapsing. It's caving in. Why? Because the infrastructure is so bad. Communism. You know, they thought they were these administrative gurus, and they did the complete opposite. And you come to America, and when I came back from America, I started seeing how everything was incredible. You start seeing like everything is straight. Everything is clean. You go to Russia, there's no, there's no curbs. There's no curbs. There's just asphalt and then there's just dirt and it's flowing into driveways. It's flowing into people's yards. There's garbage everywhere. Streets are crooked. Everything's out of order. You go to Almaty, Kazakhstan, and the gas lines, they just run overhead. Everything's, there's wires hanging out. Everything's in chaos. There's no good sanitation service. Right? There's, there's not garbage men coming every week, cleaning up your trash. People just walk out, they throw their trash in a pile. Or the neighborhood just finds this place and they just dump their trash there. And you see these countries and their infrastructure is poor. And you come to America and you see, wow, clean water, running water, consistent power. Right? Not highways with HOV lanes. Right? Everything in America... It's so nice. Everything's organized. Yards are pristine. And it goes back to good administration. It goes back to good infrastructure. And it's hard for us to appreciate that until you go to a third world country or you go to a country where there's not good administration. My point is that administration, service, that's what is the strength, one of the strengths of our church. We have good administration. We have good service so that we can enjoy good ministry. So you and I, we drive down the street, and we don't really notice there's curbs. We don't really notice there's sidewalks. We don't notice that everything is straight, and that all the houses are pristine, because we're so used to it. 
But all that stuff, trash being picked up every week, all that results in the American life, the American dream, where you have a good, nice, happy, clean, well-functioning life, where the Internet's always working, the TV is always functioning. You can get home and turn on the TV anytime you want. You can turn on you know, the microwave anytime you want because you've always got power. We take that for granted. But that's not the purpose. That's a means to the end of, good, of a good life. Service in the church. Service, well-organized, good structure, is the means to good ministry. So first I would say, appreciate those who are serving. Appreciate the setup team on Sunday. Appreciate the men who are, you know, Sunday service, who are prepping and administrating and organizing everything. Because our abilities to enjoy the Word and to enjoy worship and to enjoy fellowship with one another is because we have good service, because we have good infrastructure. But infrastructure is not the end. So my exhortation here is the Word, the Gospel, dwells in us richly so that we can personally minister and personally encourage each other. So be careful that you're not turning into personal Jesus where you just serve and you just do your own thing, but you, you're a good servant, but you're not a good minister. Be a good minister. Some of you do more service than ministry. That's great. But make sure that you're always ministering to others, that you're always encouraging each other with the gospel. And then finally, remember that what fuels thanksgiving, what fuels thankfulness, in your hearts to God is the gospel. If you have no joy, if your heart's stale and crusty, the Christian knows he cannot pull himself up by his bootstraps. And if I had time, I would argue and I would go through the New Testament and show you that every command to be joyful flows after the cross has been expounded. So if there's no joy, if your heart is cold and stale, Don't try to work yourself up into a frenzied state of joyfulness. Go back and remind yourself of the cross. Finally, I just want to commend a few books to you that would be helpful, that would be encouraging. Um, Two books I'm holding in my hands. I just got this book on Friday, and I've started reading it, and I'll already encourage. It's already come highly recommended by Tim Challies and a bunch of other guys. The Cross He Bore, little book, exactly 100 pages. I got it at Westminster Theological Books. You go to wtsbooks.com and you could buy this book for four dollars and three cents. Costs more money to ship it than it does to buy it. Okay, but so buy more books. But buy this book, very encouraging book, uh, The Cross He Bore: Meditations on the Sufferings of the Redeemer. And this man just un- expounds and unfolds the riches of the cross, reminding us of the gospel. So since it's so cheap, and since you're going to have to pay $5 on shipping, might as well buy another one. A, a Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. And I have to confess, I've only skimmed through it, but it seems good. Right? Uh, again, recommended. Milton Vincent is actually a, a pastor from TMS. He's out in Riverside. He's written this book. Um, he wrote it as a means to his shepherding his own heart with the gospel. And then he has published it for his church and for us. I encourage you to that. If you want something a little thicker, Read John Stott's The Cross of Christ. Tremendous book. Great book on the cross. Read John Stott's The Cross of Christ. Read 10 pages a day. Work your way through the gospel. And then, final recommendation, maybe if The Cross of Christ is a little too intense. R.C. Sproul has a book called The Truth of the Cross. Uh, I've read about three quarters of that. And it's more of like a devotional. It's um, along the lines of C.J. Mahaney's um, his book on the cross, The Cross-Centered Life. Right, so Sproul does a good job as well. Little book. Um, read those books. Read those books. Even before, you know, again, put down your, your books on Christian living. Put down, if you're always reading books on Christian living, and on parenting, on the Christian life, put them down for a little bit. And read books on the gospel. Read books on the cross. And let those stir your hearts and your affections. Let the cross be the center of our church. God, we thank you again for the gospel, for your grace. Lord, I recognize 
that I preach this message over and over and that I'm turning into, as is aptly said, a one-trick pony, just saying the same message over and over. And yet, Lord, I, as a young man, my greatest need is to understand this. And this church, Lord, Cornerstone Bible Church, we're a young church. We have many years of ministry. We have many years of life together. Lord, there are, by your grace, there are many works which you have prepared beforehand, not for us individually, but for us corporately to accomplish for the kingdom. Thus, Lord, what we greatly need as a young church is to not think that a few sermons on the gospel has established a foundation, but, Lord, constantly and continually, perpetually going back to the gospel as the Word of God itself does, as the New Testament does, expounding the cross and expounding all the recesses and the confines of that woody and bloody tree. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would let us grasp that our church would ever be built more and more upon this great foundation, this broad base of the gospel of our Lord, of his death and his sufferings and his resurrection. And that this message would dwell not simply in the Bible, but it would dwell in our hearts, in our midst. And that the outworkings would be gospel ministry, biblical, Christ-centered gospel, efficacious counseling to each other, sharpening each other with the iron of the gospel. And that, Lord, we would sing with each other psalms and hymns and spiritual songs because of your great love towards us. We thank you again, O Lord, for your grace, for your mercy. In your name we pray. Amen.